Tonight's reading is from Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, 
so you can be refreshed and and then go on your way, now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child, now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. This is God's word. Uh, Father, um, thank you for the chance of a bit of uh, rest uh, this weekend. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for some of the scenes that we've, uh, many of us have enjoyed this afternoon. Uh, clamoring for a glimpse, just a glimpse of uh, the Queen. And we thank you for her. We thank you for these celebrations. But as we see those sorts of scenes, uh, Lord, we, uh, we're taken upwards, we're taken uh, forwards in our thinking. We long for the day when uh, we will catch a glimpse of you, the God of the universe, will uh, we'll meet you. Uh, we will be with your people and the crowds as they uh, gather, as uh, people turn their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we uh, come to your word this evening, Father, we, uh, we cry out to you as we look forward to that day of meeting you. We pray this evening through your word that you would meet with us this evening. Just as you came to Abraham and Sarah to promise and to call and to reassure. So, Father, we ask this evening that you would meet with us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. A year ago, I don't know if anyone was here, but there was a magician called John Archer, a Christian comedian magician, who came here and he stood at the front here and uh, he was doing an event for us. And he did the most remarkable trick I think I've, uh, I've ever seen. Basically, he had uh, some of you might have been involved in, in the trick. There were no sort of plants in the audience. He, had, so he pulled some people out and he basically got them to draw a picture could be any picture that they wanted in, in the world. could be a space rocket, could be a house, could be a cow, whatever it was, anything. And, uh, and he would tell them what they'd drawn. doesn't sound like much of a trick, except that, except that he was blindfolded. So he took a couple of, uh, I think it was 50 pence coins, and he put them on his, uh, his eyes. And then he, he taped them over his eyes like that, and he got people up to, to check. And then he just got duct tape, and he just started taping it round his head. And he got more people up to sort of tape it in so that he could see absolutely nothing. 
And, uh, and if you were here, there was a remark, you know, basically he just kept going for about four or five minutes, just sort of taping with duct tape all, all around his head so he could see absolutely nothing. And if you were sitting here that evening, pe- people just started, well, laughing. <laughs> just, we, you know, you'd done it for a little bit and then, and then he just kept going and going and you, you, you just laughing. It's ridiculous. Okay, we got the point. This is ridiculous. You, you, you're never going to be able to, to do this. Just the laughter, the further he went on, the more the laughter grew. Now, now we're looking at a bit in the Bible this evening. We're going through the life of uh, Abraham. And in this chapter, the further that God goes on, the less possible his promises seem. So that actually in this chapter, people start laughing. People just start laughing. It's ridiculous. Your promises to us are just, they're just crazy. People start laughing. Uh, in this chapter, God seems to make it as hard as possible to do his promises within this chapter. And the chapter ends with one of the clearest statements about God's sovereignty in the Bible. It's, it's this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's where the chapter ends. And yet it starts with, well, Abraham is in despair. He's in a low ebb, I guess you'd say. And if you were here last week, you'd you'd know why. Because in chapter 16, well, his life had just been a soap opera, really. (laughs) Chapter 16, it was just a soap opera. Um, He goes off with Hagar. They have a child, Ishmael. And now we fast forward 13 years. And, well, Ishmael's now a 13-year-old lad. He has a daily reminder in his son Ishmael of the mess that he'd made. There is Ishmael, his 13-year-old son, now into hair gel and girls and all of that. And there is, there is Ishmael, a daily reminder, a daily reminder for him of the mess that he'd made. No doubt he remembers the promises. God had made promises to him. But I don't know, we meet Abraham and he's at a low ebb. He hasn't got the promises, but it seems in his heart that he's just settled for less. He's just settled for less than... The promises that God had put for him. And so do you see, just uh, if you've lost your place, page 17. Do you see verse 18? God comes to him and he says, it'll be through Sarah. Verse 18, Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. He laughs to himself. He says, do it through Ishmael. What's he saying? He's saying, God, Whatever. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He probably didn't do the sort of symbol and the sort of, you know, he didn't do nothing. Doesn't do that. But that's what he's saying. He's, he's saying, whatever. If only, if only Ishmael might live. Whatever, Lord. Yeah. I know they're the promises, but Lord, look, it's been 13 years, Lord. Sarah and I, we've had to move on. He's living in the wilderness of whatever. God promises to make him all that he should be, and he can't quite hear it. But God is saying, look, my promises. My promises still stand. My promises stand. Now this chapter matters because some of us, either this evening or from time to time, we just find ourselves in the wilderness of whatever. Just whatever. Whatever, Lord. We're children of the promises and yet God's promises to us just seem so impossible. God comes to us and says, uh, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation and yet we know that we've made a mess and we go, whatever, Lord. Whatever, Lord, yeah, but you know about my sin. It's a bigger mess than anyone in this room would know. Whatever. Well, God says, I will bring in the new heaven and the new earth. You're destined to 
for heaven, something beyond this world. And we said, whatever, Lord. Yeah, you know, I just settle for life here. Say, whatever. Or God says to us, I can work all things, even this for good. I can turn bad things and work them for good. And you say, well, Lord, this, this one just seems too big. So we say, whatever. Whatever. But you see in this chapter, God came to Abraham and he spoke words of reassurance. And at the end of the chapter, Abraham and Sarah, they pick themselves up and they walk again with God. So let's uh, come to uh, God expecting that he would do that uh, in us this evening. And let's see three things about uh, our God as we meet him in these verses. I slightly changed the, the, the headings. I'll come up on the screen. But firstly, God pursues his people. Secondly, he changes his people. Thirdly, he visits his people. So first, he pursues his people with his promises. God pursues his people. He chases them down with his promises. So verse 1. When Abraham was, sorry, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. The Lord appears and says, I will confirm my covenant. Now that word covenant, it's a, it's a big word in this chapter, comes up 13 times. It's the first time that we see the word covenant within the Abraham story. So the writer's flagging it up as a big word for us. It's, it's the idea of a promise. It would have been a very familiar idea to people at the time, the idea of a, a covenant, cutting a covenant with someone. So imagine uh, you belong to a small tribe. You live in a desert. You're part of a small tribe. You're called um, the nobodies. Stupid name. You're slightly kicking yourself for calling yourself such a silly name, but there you are. You're stuck with it. You're called the nobodies, and you live in, in the desert. And into the area comes a much larger tribe, a dominant tribe. They've got a large army. They've got chariots. They've got everything. And they're called the somebodies. Brilliant name. Brilliant name. You wish you'd thought of it. They're called the somebodies, and they're much more. What are you hoping for? You're hoping that they will cut a covenant with you. That's what you want. They're much more powerful than you. And you want them to cut a covenant with benefits for you. So imagine they come to you and say, we want to cut a covenant with you. Here are the benefits. We will protect you. We will protect you and look after uh, you. Those are the benefits. Here are the obligations. You are to be loyal to us. Benefits, obligations. Now, if you're the nobody's living in the desert, and that is what is put on the table before you, you, you take it with both hands. Say, yeah, we'll sign up to that. It's terrific. Covenant, yes. Yes, please. And that's what God is doing here as he comes to Abraham. He's laying out the benefits. So we get them in verse 3. It, it starts, as for me. We get to as for Abraham and as for Sarah in a minute, but it starts with God, as for me. Verse 3. And God lays out the depth and the duration of the promises. So verse uh, Three, Abraham falls and God says to him, As for me, this is the covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. So God says, I will make you the father of many nations. I'll change your name. You're to be called Abraham. And do you remember we, we heard about God's, uh, Abraham's name last week? Uh, do you remember that name means exalted father? We're saying how embarrassing that must have been for Ab- Abraham to carry that name around, given he had no children. And so now he's got a son. 
And uh, can you imagine he comes home to his household that evening and he says, God's changed my name. And uh, everyone must have thought, well, terrific at last. You know, is it, I mean, is it a much more sensible name like, um, like Father of One at this point? And, um, and now actually, uh, he's changed my name to Father of Many Nations. It's slightly awkward, isn't it? This, this new name that he has because he's got one son. And yet God says, that's my promise to you. I will make you the father of many nations. God is laying out his benefits uh, in this covenant. So there's the depth of it. But verse 7, we get as well the duration of these promises. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. You and your seed will be the everlasting channel of blessing to other nations. The land will be yours forever. And verse 8, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God. Now that's a theme tune that's just picked up in the rest of the Bible. It's what God's people throughout the Old Testament say. This is the best thing about us. Is that God is our God and we're his people. We belong to God. And that's what uh, God is saying to Abraham. You will always be able to say that the God of the stars, the God of history, is the God that you know and who you belong to. They're amazing promises, aren't they? To a nomad who lives in the middle of nowhere in ancient history, God made promises to him. He pursued his people to bless them. One of my favorite films is uh, the film The Last of the Mohicans. I don't know if you've ever seen that, that film based on a, the, the book, James Fenimore Cooper. That, that book is a brilliant film. I love it. I could watch it time and again. It's got a brilliant scene in it early on when Daniel Day-Lewis, who's the character in that, uh, is being separated from the girl that he's fallen for. And there's one scene when he looks her in the eye and he basically say, he says these words. He says, I will find you. That's it. I will find you. And then he's torn away from her. And the rest of the film... She goes through the rest of the, the film. And Daniel Day-Lewis is always just on the fringes. And what's he doing? He's made that promise and he's pursuing her with that promise. He says, I will find you. I'll come and rescue you. He's made a promise and he pursues. And that's the God of the Bible. So verse uh, 16. God says to Abraham, verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her. I'll surely give you a son by her. I'll bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from you. And what does uh, Abraham say? He says, well, well, Lord, you, look, we've settled, Lord. You might not have noticed, but I'm 99 and my wife is you know, 10 years younger. There's not a lot going on between us, Lord. You need to know that. I mean, your promise... Your promises, your promises are writing checks that our body can't cash. You know, that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, and do you see what God says, verse 19? Literally, verse 19 is God said, no, Sarah. He says, look, I've got this plan. Just do it this way. God says, no, Sarah. Going to do it through Sarah. I've made promises. I'm pursuing you, my people, with my promises to bless you. Not through your plans of reaching up. I will reach down and do this. And you'll have a son called Isaac. Means he laughs. God says, I want to make you laugh, Abraham. And Abraham says, you're kind of doing that anyway, Lord. I want to make you laugh. I'm going to give you a son through Sarai. And then verse 22, God leaves. Now don't you find that encouraging? God pursues his people with his promises to bless them. 
That's what the God of the Bible does. He chases his people down with the promises that he's made. And that must have been such an encouragement for Abraham because he knows that he's messed up for 13 years. He's been living with that. He must have thought, well, maybe God's moved on. Maybe God's forgotten. Maybe I've sinned away the promises of God. Now, sure, his sin had consequences. Sure. But they couldn't derail the promises of God. Couldn't do that. God had a plan. And that's an encouragement for us too, that this is our God. Some of us be thinking, well, goodness, I've just messed up too much. You know, I've got an Abraham moment that I just can't move on from, and I'm living in the land of whatever. So maybe I just settle for less, and maybe God can't use me now. Maybe he can't use me to bless other people, and God says no. God says no. He's stubborn. He pursues his people with his promises. He says the promises are on. God pursues his people with his promises. That's our God. But then the second thing, God changes his people through their obedience. God changes his people through their obedience. So as I said, the first half of the covenant is as for me. As for me, this is what I'll do. But then do you see the second half? It's, uh, it's then broken down. Uh, verse 9, as for you, verse 15, as for you. And there are really two things that God calls uh, Abraham to do. The first is to walk with him and the second is to wear his sign. So he says, uh, walk with me. So just look back at verses 1 and 2 of the chapter. I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Literally it's, Walk before me, that I might give you the covenant. Walk before me and be blameless, that I might give you the covenant. That's how it works. Now just pause on that, because that sounds more conditional than the promises that we've come across before. So do you remember in chapter 15, God's promises were unconditional promises. So what's going on? Well, chapter 15, God makes a promise, descendants and the land. And if you remember, only God walked through the animals that had been cut in two. Only God walked through because everything depended on God. It was his unconditional promise. It didn't depend on Abraham. It didn't depend on the people. It just depended on God. And Abraham, we're told, believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He had saving faith. He was saved by God's grace alone. The Bible makes that clear. Romans 4 underlines that. That's chapter 15. Now you get to chapter 17, you can't ignore the fact that you have a conditional promise here. It's not undoing the promise of chapter 12 or 15, it's building on it. But it's basically about a bit that chapter 15 didn't touch upon, which was that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Uh, That Abraham would be the one who would carry the blessing to others. And the point is that for Abraham to do that... For Abraham to be the father of nations depends in some measure upon his obedience. He's to be blameless. Now that never means in the Old Testament that he's to be sinless. Never means that. It means that he's to walk loyally, humbly with his life before God as the one who will carry the blessing to others. And if he does that, well the blessing will go out through him to others. If he doesn't do that, well we've already seen in the chapter so far. That if he doesn't do that, it has a massive effect on the kings and the pharaohs around him. 
Abraham is meant to be the blessing carrier to others. And God is saying, look, you're my, you're my child, but I'm calling you to obey. For Abraham to be all that he was meant to be, he was called to obedience. And that's the way, again, throughout the scriptures for God's people. Saves us and he calls us to obedience all the way through. Fred said, a friend said to me the, the other day as we talked about this, God saves us and he already has other people in mind too. God saves us and he already has people in mind for us to be a blessing to. And it's true if you think of the nation of Israel. God saves Israel and he has other people in mind through them. God saves Paul and he already has the Gentiles in mind. God saved you. He already has other people in mind. And he calls us to obedience. So he changes his people. He says, walk with me. And then there's a second thing. He calls the people to wear his sign. So we get these, uh, these verses on circumcision. You're to keep this covenant through circumcision. So God touches the, the, the organ of procreation, the, the way that the blessing would go to, to others. God says you're to be circumcised. And we get a hint in verse 13 that this isn't just a physical descent. Do you see in verse 13, there'll be some who'll be born in your house and there'll be others who won't be born, who'll be bought with money, who won't physically be descended from you. This is it's about a spiritual blessing going out. But to put themselves under my blessing individually, they have to come into my covenant. They have to obey. They have to come in and obey. Now, of course, we know from the rest of the Bible that to come into the relationship, they actually needed surgery inside. They needed a circumcision of the heart. But do you see verse 14? It's, it's a choice. Either there's cutting in, in, in one of two places, either cutting on the flesh, cutting in your body, or verse 14, be cut off from my people. It's a choice. There's a covenant. God's laying out a covenant and saying, look, will you, will you come in? This is the covenant that I'm offering. Do you see, God wants to change his people. I mean, he changes their name for a start, but he wants to change his people. He calls them to obedience. He says, I'm not discarded. You want to bless you. I want to use you. Now walk with me. Walk with me and be blameless. Now that's true of any relationship. Any relationship that you come into, it's meant to change you. I mean, think of, think of the covenant of, of marriage. That's a picture we'd, we'd be familiar with today. The covenant of marriage. Two people come into that. The, the relationship, the person, it changes you. Speaking to a friend the other day, I said, I said what, was the, what was the first thing that had to change when you, became, when you were married? He said, um, personal hygiene. <laughs> personal, straight, straight away. Okay, right, there you go, fine. I mean, he's not even a particularly smelly guy, but, you know, just you know, straight in there. Personal hygiene. Now, if we get that, I mean, if you met someone, you said, well, look, I'm married, but I don't really let it affect my life. You go, well, what are you talking about? Of course the relationship is meant to, is meant to change you meant to change even the most private and intimate parts of who you are. And that's the point. We, we often forget this, that if you come into a covenant with God, you're not coming into a covenant with an idea or a philosophy. You're coming into a covenant with a person. He happens to be the God of the universe. He's perfectly holy. And so, of course, it will change us if we come into a covenant with him. We'll want to obey him. We'll want to be changed by him 
So can I ask, do you see that? God wants to change you. That's what he's about with his people. He's calling us to obey that we might be the people of blessing to others. And you know, that helps because that is an objection that often people have against the the Christian faith. They will say, well, look, it looks to me like the Christian faith is basically you can just carry on living uh, your own way and then you can take this ticket called a ticket to heaven and you can just bolt that on the end. But basically you can just carry on living. Uh, and, And people say that. But actually that's not genuine Christianity that they've observed there. Genuine Christian faith is you repent and believe. You turn from living with yourself as king and you believe. You trust in Jesus Christ as king. You do that by God's grace. But that is genuine conversion. Uh, Someone put it this way, quote just uh, up up, up on the screen. The people want God to be their God at least so that when they die, he'll take them to be with them in heaven. But they don't show the least desire to be with him or his people now. They don't want a relationship with God that changes their lives. But that is the only kind of relationship God offers. God will be your God and come into your life and change it completely. Or he will not be your God at all. With all the consequences that has. Do you see that? That's what God is saying. There's a covenant. Come into it by 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 grace. But it will be a covenant that will change you. And will change even the most intimate and personal areas of who you are. I don't want to be crass, but look, put it this way. When Abraham came back to the guys in the household in verse 27 and said, guys, we've got a covenant with God. Here's what you have to do. This was not a great day for the men in the household. This was not a great day. This was radical. This was, cha- this was changing the most intimate and personal parts of who they were. It's a painful surgery. And that is it's a picture it's a picture of what it likes, looks like to, to have a covenant with God. You get all of his benefits, all of the benefits of knowing him, having eternity sewn up, having forgiveness for every sin. But a relationship with a holy God, the covenant God, it affects you, changes you, even in the most personal and intimate areas of your life. I, I don't know, where is that for you at the moment? Where's that, where does that bite private dreams and and ambitions that you just cling on to and have never brought before the Lord? Money, that would be an area. That's a taboo area, isn't it? For for any of us to know about each other's financial situations, let alone for God to come in and speak about it in that area. But perhaps sex is, is probably one of the most taboo areas. The thought that God could have anything to say about how we run our relationships. I remember speaking to a couple not at uh, not at church here and and basically the the penny was starting to drop and for a while it was basically look the thought that God could say that uh, sex is only for us within marriage that was just anathema to them they they were they were going out their boyfriend and girlfriend sleeping together but saying that they were they were Christians and And the thought that God could have anything to say about something as intimate and personal as what they did in the bedroom is just too much. It was a bit of a block for a while. Now, wonderfully, they they came through that. It was a turning point. They obeyed. They obeyed the Lord. They made changes in their relationship. And actually, wonderfully, they're in a different part of the world now, being used as a blessing to others. It was a turning point. God changes his people through their obedience. 
I don't know where that is for you. But whatever that is for you. Do you see verse 23? Abraham is held up as a model of obedience to us. On that very day, Abraham did it. He didn't muck about. He didn't say, well, next week we'll do this. You know, we'll just put it on hold for a little bit. He said, God, your promises to me are so wonderful in a world that's just gone wrong. And you're promising to bless me. Your promises are so good that I just say, yes, please. Where's the car? Want me to sign up today? I'll sign up today. It's a model of obedience. Don't put it off. If you know you need to do business before the Lord, then do it tonight. Do it today. If you never come to Christ, come today. If you and your girlfriend, you need to have a conversation, do it today. If you feel uncomfortable with that decision you made at work with the, the colleague, the business practice you were just unsure, phone after the bank holiday, Wednesday morning. Move on. Get the conversation going. God's about changing his people through their obedience. And look, if we find ourselves hesitating at that moment, if we think this is just too much, well, maybe we need to hear the third thing. And it's that God visits his people to reassure them. God visits his people to reassure them. Now, chapter 18 is a strange scene, isn't it? Three men come to visit. Abraham sees them. He knows that something is up immediately. He bows down to the ground. And of course, uh, we know from verse 1 that it's the Lord uh, appearing to him. In fact, it becomes clear at the end of chapter 18, the start of chapter 19, it, we're told that it's the Lord and two angels specifically. It's the Lord and, and two angels. And Abraham is held up as a model of faith again. He's a contrast to Lot, who we'll meet next week, whose hospitality is, uh, is a sham. Uh, but here, and in the Bible, Hebrews 13, Abraham's held up as a model of hospitality. Hospitality is not just entertaining those that you know, it's entertaining those who are new into town, who you don't know at all. That's Christian hospitality. And he's held up as a model of that. So um, verse 6, he hurries into the tent to Sarah quick. He says, get three seers. Then he, he runs out to the herd. Uh, he, gets, uh, he gets Daisy, the choice calf. Everyone thinks, what are you doing? I thought we were saving Daisy for a really special occasion. And he says, this is the special occasion. Daisy, steak sandwiches, and, and off they go. You know, it's, uh, it's a meal. And there he is, and he waits upon them. He produces a meal for them. So Abraham's held up as a model of faith. But actually, the focus in these chapters is on the Lord and Sarah. That's what this scene is all about. It's about the Lord and Sarah. And that culture, the woman wouldn't have been at the meal. And so we're told that he asks about her. Where, where's Sarah? Verse 9. Oh, she's in the tent. Verse 10. The Lord said, look, here's the specific promise for her. I'll surely return to you about this time next year. Do you see God's making it harder for himself? There's more tapes sort of wrapped around the head. Next year, we'll do this. She's 90. It's well past this. And yet there's a specific promise for Sarah. Do you see, the point is that God has a concern to strengthen the faith of his people, to reassure them. And so he visits them. And so there is Sarah standing before the Lord, the God of the universe. And she hears this promise and she laughs. She says, am I now to get my master's pleasure? I mean, really, really Lord, have you seen me? you seen him? I mean, really, Lord? Really? 
And she's afraid and so she lies. And God says, verse 15, she says, I didn't lie. God says, yeah, but no, but (laughs) you did. What's he doing? It's a gentle rebuke to her. He's saying, look, I know your inner thoughts. I mean, in, in some sense, that's scary, isn't it? That the Lord would know our inner thoughts. And yet it must have been a strange reassurance as well. The one who knows her inner thoughts knows even when she quietly laughs within herself, knows her so intimately. He's the same one who she can trust with the future. He's the one who's going to touch her life. You see, this is, this is the God that we meet in the Bible, the God who visits his people to reassure them. And you see that the thing that he teaches her is this statement that's picked up again in the Bible. Is anything, verse 14, Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now it is easy, isn't it, in the Christian life to function as basically just as if there is no God outside there and you just sort of end up living in the natural world and natural processes. A guy called Francis Schaeffer writes a book called Death in the City. In the last chapter of that book, he says, imagine that there are two guys sitting on chairs uh, in, the, in the room. There are just two guys sitting uh, on chairs. One is a materialist. He believes that there's nothing outside of the world. The other is a Christian. And they're sitting in this room and there's a clock on the wall. And the clock stops. And the materialist says, well, I suppose I better clamber up on a chair and fix it. And the Christian says, well, we could do that. That would be fine. Or I could, from my chair, sitting where I am, talk to the God of the universe. And he could intervene to start the clock again. And the guy in the other chair says, you're crazy. You're crazy. They're just two ways of looking at the world. There's nothing outside there. There's nothing out there. Now, he's not making a point. He's not saying that God doesn't work through systems and laws that actually depend on God. But what he's putting his finger on is the attitude that, that we often live with, which is that actually there are some things which are just beyond the Lord. I was rebuked on this myself this week. I helped to run a summer camp. There, there aren't many teenage, teenage lads signed up. Always the same, it seems, every year. And I found myself just thinking, well, you know what, this... This is how it always is. You know, this is probably what's going to be. I was reading these verses. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Could the Lord bring more boys? Yes. Now, I don't have a specific promise. God is dealing with a specific promise for Sarah. He's made a specific promise. But he is correcting an approach, an attitude to uh, him that's been wrong in her life. Which is to think that there are certain things that are just too hard for the Lord. No, no specific promises for us in the same way that there were for Sarah. But how do you approach God? I guess that's the question. In different areas of life. How do you approach God? Do you basically approach God as, look, God is just overstretched. You know, he's taped himself up just, just a bit too much. And there are things that are just too hard for him to do. Or do you approach God as the God that he reveals himself as, as the God who is the unfettered God of the universe, the one who towers above all, who lives in glorious freedom? Is anything, is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, it just corrects our thinking, our wobbly thinking about him. And it was this that was to drive out fear in Sarah. 
So she cleared up the dinner that day. She was left to ponder on that question. Is anything too hard from the Lord? God is in charge of all. His plans are bigger. Now don't you find this remarkable that the God of chapter 1 of Genesis, the God who put all of the universe in place, the God we met in chapter 15 who is fire, that he comes to eat a meal to strengthen his people, to reassure them in their doubts. What Sarah needed most of all was for God to come near. And he did. He visited to her to strengthen her in her doubts. And that's what we need as God's people. God to come near and strengthen us. I don't know if you've ever read uh, The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. Great story. There's a, there's a little boy in that called Shasta. And at one moment... Uh, He says this, he says, I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the world. And he's riding along in his horse and he's at a low ebb. And he suddenly becomes conscious that alongside him, alongside him is something that's near and breathing and it's an animal, he's not sure what it is. And then he realizes that it's, it's the lion, Aslan, who's come alongside him. And so he starts to pour out his whole story about how they were chased by this lion and chased by that other lion and all of the unfortunate things that had happened to him. And Aslan stops him and he says, I was the lion. I was the lion. Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you. I was the lion who drove the jackals. I was the lion who gave the horses. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay so that it came ashore where a man sat to receive you. And the story goes on. Shasta looks to his right and still he can't see Aslan yet but he knows that this terrifying lion has come near to somehow comfort him in the midst of his grief and his sadness and he looks again to the lion and here we get a quote he says he turned and he saw pacing beside him taller than the horse a lion the horse did not seem to be afraid of it or else could not see it it was from the lion that the light came no one ever saw anything more terrible or beautiful after one glance at the lion's face he slipped out of the saddle and fell at his feet He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he didn't need to say anything. The high king above all kings stooped down towards uh, towards him. Its mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung around the mane was all round him. It touched his forehead with its tongue. He lifted his face and their eyes met. Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled themselves together into swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. He was alone with the horse on a grassy hillside under a blue sky and the birds were singing. Aslan visited Shasta to reassure him in his doubt. And that is what God's people have always needed in history. It's what Sarah needed. God to visit his people and to reassure. And so we live with promises. We live with promises that God has made to us. Not the specific promise that Sarah had. But promises of heaven, promise that God can use bad even for good, promises of God's presence. And we can look back more than Sarah and Abraham could and see how God's promises have held true. They held true for Abraham and Sarah. They held true when God in Jesus Christ went into a tomb and died and out of that dead tomb came back to life again. 
And God comes to Sarah in her low ebb and he says, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? Looks overstretched, but he says, walk with me. As we close, at the end of that magic trick, if you were here last year, there was a different sort of laughter. Started with a laughter of what, how on earth is he going to do that? But when he'd done the trick, just a different sort of laughter took over. It was a different sort of laughter. People were looking at each other going, how, how did he do that? How on earth did he do that? Did you, how, did you know how he did I don't know how he did. Do you know how? No, I have no idea. And people were just laughing at what John Archer had done. He moved us from one sort of laughter to the other. And that is what God is doing in history. In chapter 21, Isaac is born. Exactly when God says, and they laugh at the child of laughter. They laugh at the child of laughter. God has moved his people from disbelief to the laughter of joy. He'd moved them from the wilderness of whatever to the land of laughter. And look, our promises are found in Jesus Christ, the seed. So do you remember Isaac is the seed? But we see in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the seed in which all of the promises of God are yes. And God is committed to doing that for his people. In Jesus Christ, taking us one day finally and fully from one sort of laughter to the next. Into the laughter of heaven. And God says there's laughter. There is laughter still to come. That's what he say to us in our low ebb. So lift your, lift, lift your eyes again. There is still laughter to come. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We laugh, we say, Lord... God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Look to me. Walk with me. Let's pray together. Father, many of us can um, sense what Abraham and Sarah must have sensed as they looked at your promises and just just wondered, just wondered. And yet we thank you that you uh, visited them. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ you've visited us, that your promises to us in him are yes. And so we, uh, we look to you again and we ask that you would help us to walk with you in obedience, trusting you and holding on for the day when you take one sort of laughter and turn it into the laughter of heaven. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.